Isn't it amazing that God can love us that much? That's exactly what he's talking about in that verse and in the skip you guys just did. I made a, an exciting announcement back during the first service. I mentioned that Jonathan and Alexi Kay have safely brought another... No, there you go. They, they safely brought another baby girl into the world. So uh, Charlotte Madeline is her name. She was born Friday night. And I won't mention how easy Alexi's labor and delivery were because it will just make those of you who had a tougher time with labor and delivery just kind of purr a little bit. And I want to remind everybody about our Connect class, which takes place this coming Saturday at 1 o'clock here in the church building. And we'd just love it if you could come and find out how to connect to God as well as to the church. And it will be the following Saturday as well. Now, there are times in sports when athletes would like to just start all over again. But I think back to the recent World Junior Hockey Championships. And Canada was playing in the, in the semifinal game against Russia. And they fell behind by 6-1 to one by the end of the second period. They made it exciting, scored four goals in the third period, came back to 6-5, but still lost the game. And I'm sure they wished they could have just gone back and started that all over again. And anybody who is an Ottawa Senators fan, you might be feeling the very same way after the game last night. Toronto Maple Leafs beat them 5 nothing. They just didn't get off to a good start. They would have liked to just go back and begin again. People feel that way about business sometimes. They're involved in a company. They had an opportunity to maybe invest in some other companies 15, 20 years prior to that. They didn't do it. And those companies have just taken off. And they kind of regret the fact that they can't start over. Maybe it's investing in stocks. And they realize, you know, there's a stock. If I had bought it you know, this number of years ago, today I would have tripled my money. We all had moments from the past that we'd like to just erase. Whether it's immoral choices, where it's careless words, it might be exorbitant purchases, it might be impulsive actions. I did one of those this past summer. I was golfing at the Green Gables Golf Course with my brother and my cousins, and they both bought these golf carts. It was at 10 rounds at these two golf courses in the Cavendish area. Normally, those rounds would cost $700 to $1,000, and you could get this cart for $300, and it was good for two, three years. So I immediately bought the cart. And then one of my cousins said, why are you doing that? You don't even live on PEI. And I hoping I made a mistake. But I didn't. I can use that card during my numerous visits to the island. But we have things like that, don't we? We have actions that we make that maybe we do regret. Maybe there are broken relationships. And we all like to just relive those moments. We give anything to just go back to that land of beginning again. In John chapter 3, Jesus offered Nicodemus the opportunity to actually do that, to begin a new life. And Jesus called this being born again. And it's a spiritual concept that once we understand it, it can actually revolutionize our attitude and our life. 
So we're going to examine who Nicodemus was. We're going to look at the offer that Jesus gave to him. And then we're going to look at the response that Nicodemus gave as well. well. Maybe you can easily identify with Nicodemus in his search. Because there are a few words that really describe who he was. That he was respectable. That every scripture that we read about him that tells us that he was one of the Pharisees. That he was highly respected in his community. And these people were the ones who would pledge to keep the law. They would follow every little detail in the law. So they were going to lead the community in that way. But Nicodemus was even more than that. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And this was a group of 70 men who were the most respected and brilliant legal minds in Israel. And one of the duties of this group was to deal with false prophets. And they were the ones who felt that Jesus was a false prophet. So it's so amazing that Nicodemus would come to Jesus at all, let alone actually say to him, you are a teacher who has come from God. Nicodemus was also a wealthy man. Look at verse uh, 39 of John chapter 19. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. The only a man of great wealth could bring a burial gift like that for Jesus. And Clovis Chapel said this. He said, here's a man who was all at once the equivalent of a college professor, judge of the Supreme Court, and a bishop in the church. Now maybe some of you here today are like Nicodemus. That maybe you're the executive of a company. You might be the head of a department. Maybe you're a member of a very influential organization. You're moral. You're intelligent. You're successful. Everything about you says respectable. But you want to do something more than that. You want something more than respectable. You realize that there's more to life than personal achievements. And you want to admit your need to have God in your life. See, Jesus said, unless you humble yourself and become like a little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, have you ever done this? You got on an elevator, you press, let's say, the, the tenth floor, you get in, it, you're not really paying attention to the numbers above the doors, and the elevator stops. It's actually at the eighth floor, but you think it's your floor, and you get out while some other people get into the elevator. You then realize your mistake, but what do you do? Do you immediately get back in, or do you not let on you made a mistake? And you just keep walking a little bit until the elevator doors close, then you go back and press the 10th floor again. That's what most people do. And scholars refer to that as pseudo-sophistication. And that is something that can have a barrier between us and God. Jesus said, unless you repent, unless you admit that you're sinful, unless you admit that you've made mistakes and you need me, you will all perish. And it's very difficult for a respectable, wealthy man like Nicodemus to actually admit those imperfections. Another word used to describe this man is restless. Here we have Jesus, who's a young man. Nicodemus is much older. 
Nicodemus was rich. Jesus had nothing. Nicodemus was part of the aristocracy, while Jesus had no titles whatsoever. And for this reason, it's so amazing that he came to Jesus. But he came to Jesus because there was a void in his life. He knew he was missing something. He was searching. He was searching for something more than respectability. And he knew there was something about Jesus that was special. He saw a joy. He, he saw a peace. He saw an assurance in Jesus that he didn't have. And he wanted that in his life. So the scripture says he came to Jesus at night. And we wonder, like, why? Was he afraid he was going to be ridiculed by his peers? Or maybe he just wanted to have a private conversation with Jesus. So that's why he approached him at night. But he came with a respectable question, because respectable people need the Lord. But I was reading about a Billy Graham crusade back in New York City about 15 years ago. And after the first night, there was a reporter that made this comment about the first night's crowd. Most of the people at the first service were well-dressed people, and not the derelicts from Skid Row that the evangelists came to convert. And we wonder, like, where did this guy ever get the impression that that was all that, Jesus, that Billy Graham, not Jesus, came to reach that night? But yes, the Bible has the power to convert the down and out, to reach the prostitute, the drug dealer. But it's a misconception to think that Jesus doesn't have the power to come to the respectable people as well. The down and out people aren't the only ones who need the gospel. Good, respectable people need forgiveness and meaning in life as well. Now, Diane Sawyer did a TV interview with Mary Tyler Moore. And Mary Tyler Moore has had a spectacular acting career, but her personal life has been a mess, basically. She has diabetes. She's had two divorces. She spent time at the Betty Ford Clinic overcoming alcoholism. Her only son committed suicide at the age of 24. And one time she was with her mother in a hospital. Her mother had been hospitalized, and there was this handsome young doctor looking after her mother. And the doctor gave Mary his card. He said, here, if there's ever any emergency at any time of the night, you call me. And in the middle of that same night, she phoned the doctor, and this is what she said. Does acute loneliness come under the heading of an emergency? And a few months later, the two of them were married. And her new husband said this about Mary Tyler Moore. On screen, she may appear capable and confident, but the confidence is not there. She is, at times, difficult to soothe. Well, sometimes people appear to be this amazing person on the outside. We can cover up so much. There's so many things that are hidden inside of us. We're troubled, and we need the certainty of a new life. And maybe your life is determined successful right now. You're, everything's going well with your job. Your family is together. You're healthy, and that's good. But maybe you're going to get to the point someday when you realize that you need more than that. You need more than that respectability. You need more than that success in order to have significance. There's something more important than that. And in Mark 8.36, Jesus said, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? So all the money, 
all the power, all the pleasure in this world won't satisfy the spiritual hunger that we have in our hearts. People are constantly searching for something to fill what one man actually determined as a God-shaped vacuum that we have inside of us. That's what God created in us. That's the part of us that constantly is seeking for God and for Jesus and for the Holy Spirit. So Nicodemus, he didn't know exactly what it was, but he knew there was an emptiness, and he knew that Jesus had something for him. So then Nicodemus is surprised when Jesus gives him this incredible offer in verse 3 of chapter 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And there are actually five characteristics of Jesus' offer to be born again that we see. And the first one is that it is essential and it's not optional. That if you aren't born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. I was teaching a high school Sunday school class and the kids thought I was pretty cool and after the first service my daughter came up to me and said, Dad, high school kids don't think you're cool. You can't even find five of them. So I started grabbing teenagers and threatening them to say, I'm pretty cool for a 52-year-old, aren't I? But I was teaching this class and in the teaching material was a poster. And the poster said, if you die, excuse me, if you're born once, you will die twice. If you're born twice, you will die once. So if you're born once physically, you're going to die physically, but if you're not born again, you're going to die spiritually, which is eternal separation from God. But if you're born twice physically, and then you're born again, then you will experience eternal life with God. As the guys talked about in the script today, like it's heaven. It's abundant life right now. It's not just something beyond us in the future. It's something that we have right now. So that's why in John 3 verse 7, Jesus said, you must be born again. Now a number of years ago, a man in Florida shot and killed an abortionist. And we wonder how two people could actually get so far off their goals that how can a doctor who pledged to save lives go from clinic to clinic indiscriminately taking the lives of hundreds of babies? And then on the other hand, how can a man who proposes to stand for the sanctity of life murder someone else? It just doesn't make sense. And there were two reporters reporting on that murder the next day, and they were coming from opposite ends of the political spectrum. There was an outspoken liberal that said this, everyone wants to have fewer abortions, but shooting people isn't the solution. We can only change people by changing their hearts. That's great, that's exactly what Jesus is telling us. And then there was an outspoken conservative who said, the pro-life movement has been hurt by this shooting. Killing doctors isn't the solution. The only way to change people is from within. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, you must be born again in order to overcome this sin problem that we have. Another thing about this offer is that it's a spiritual birth and not a physical one. In the fourth verse, how can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter into 
a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Nicodemus is saying, okay, you're talking about something here that is a radical, fundamental change from within. I think it's incredible, but I think it's impossible for me. It's just not going to happen. I'm too old to change. And there are people that think what Jesus is talking about here is a physical transformation. We'd be surprised at the number of people that believe in reincarnation. I was reading about a man that read something or heard something about reincarnation. And then he said to his wife, that does that mean I'm going to come back as a worm or something like that? And his wife said, no, I don't think he can come back as the same thing twice. <laughs> Apparently their relationship wasn't going so well. But what Jesus is talking about here isn't being physically reborn. What he's talking about is spiritually being reborn. Because the scriptures tell us that we're going to die once and then face the judgment. But look what he says in the fifth verse. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And here's what commentator William Barclay says about that. He says, water is a symbol of cleansing. And Jesus takes possession of our lives when we love him with all our heart and are baptized into him. The sins of the past are forgiven and forgotten. The Spirit is a symbol of power. When Jesus takes possession of our lives, it's not only the past that's forgiven and forgotten, because if that's all it were, we'd just make a mess of our lives all over again. But into our life enters this new power that enables us to do and be what we could never be ourselves. Water and Spirit stand for the cleansing and strengthening power of Christ, which wipes out the past and gives us victory in the future. In verse 6, he said, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And then over in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. This offer is something we experience personally. And it has to be personally experienced. But it's something that's not easily explained. We've got the evidence for it, but we don't fully understand it. We have trouble with it because this concept, it just seems so mystical. That we can have this new life and it comes from within, that there's this eternal soul within us that accepts God into our lives. In verses 7 and 8, we see Jesus using an example here. And he said, You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So he tells us that there are some examples to help us realize that this mystery is a reality. Who can understand birth, he says. And then who can understand the wind, like where it blows from, like how it causes the storms. I know we have a few people in our congregation that predict that. They're meteorologists. But nobody really knows where the wind comes from. And then in John 3, 14 and 15, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. 
And there was a period back in Numbers chapter 21 when the Israelites were being bitten by poisonous snakes and they were dying by the hundreds. And God spoke to Moses and he said, look, make a bronze snake, place it up somewhere really high, and then when the people look at that snake, they will be healed. Now, that's something that doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable, but it worked because God ordained it. And it's tough for us to understand how somebody dying on a cross can actually provide us with the salvation of our sins. But when we surrender our life to Him and give everything over to Him, our sins are forgiven and we begin a new life. And I know it happens because it has happened with me. I know it happens because I've seen it happen with many of you here. I've seen you reach that point in your life when it's almost like a light bulb comes on and faith becomes real and you surrender to Jesus and are baptized into Him. It is a real thing. It's personally experienced, even though it's not easy to explain. And then another characteristic of this offer is that it's by faith, not by works. John 3.16, which the drama was based on, and probably the most familiar verse in all the Bible. For God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And do you know what that says? That says that salvation isn't accomplished by anything that we can do. It's not accomplished by our good deeds. It's not accomplished by being in church every Sunday. It's not accomplished by giving a tenth of our income on a regular basis. It's not accomplished by praying every day. It's accomplished by trusting in Jesus. That's how we realize eternal life. The early in his professional basketball career, Michael Jordan had an amazing game, even more amazing than Tim Cook, who's leading us in worship today. Tim plays with old men and scores a lot of points in those games. But Michael Jordan scored 69 points in one game. And then there was a bench warmer on the team who got in for a couple of minutes and scored a free throw and got one point. A few weeks later, the bench warmer was interviewed and they asked him what was the most memorable point of his career. And he said, oh, that would be the night that Michael Jordan and I scored 70 points in one game. And he was trying to take credit for the points that Jordan made that night. It doesn't work. It's ridiculous. And it's kind of ridiculous for us to try and take credit for what God is doing in our lives, or even for what we've done for God. That God's the one who gave us life in the first place. He's the one who provided us salvation. He's the one who became one of us and came down here to live as one of us and die as one of us. How can we then say that we are going to be saved by our works? It's only by our relationship with Him, not by our efforts. I love what Paul wrote in Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's how it was done. It was a washing of rebirth. It was a renewal. The Holy Spirit is a part of our lives, and we've accepted that offer of new life. 
The last characteristic of Jesus' offer to be born again is that it's personal, not universal. So verses 17 and 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That the offer of salvation is for whoever will believe, whoever will trust. But it's not one that's just a blanket offer out there to everybody and a guarantee that everybody is saved without taking any action. Because if we just indifferently reject his offer, then the offer is not going to work for us. It doesn't save us. Back in the 1830, excuse me, in 1930, a man by the name of George Wilson was caught robbing the U.S. mail, and in an attempt to escape, he actually killed one of the government employees. He was arrested, he was put on trial, and found guilty and sentenced to be hanged for his crime. But for some reason, the President of the United States offered a pardon to George Wilson. And then for some strange Wilson, or some, some strange reason, George Wilson refused the pardon. So that threw the courts into this quandary, like, well, what do we do? The president offered a pardon, the man won't accept it. So the Supreme Court met and made a decision, and this is what their decision was. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the one who has been pardoned. If it is refused, it is not a pardon. George Wilson must be hanged, and he was. God has offered us a pardon from sin. He has offered us a new life in Jesus Christ. But the offer is there, and we have to accept it. We have to, in faith, make Jesus a part of our lives in order to experience that new life, in order to be born again. In chapter 7, verse 51, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? And we don't know exactly how Nicodemus responded, but there is this passage which gives us some idea of what took place in his life. And this is kind of a mild defense of Jesus. At least he spoke up, even if it was technically. And the other occasion took place after the death of Jesus. And I read one verse of that to you earlier. So it's in John 19. I'll just read verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. But then he was accompanied by Nicodemus, as we had read earlier. He visited Jesus at night. It might have been too late now, but at least Nicodemus was no longer a hidden disciple of Jesus. He stood out. He walked. He carried the body along with Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb and provided the spices for the burial. So we wonder, like, why did it take so long? If he accepted Jesus' offer, why did it take so long for it to be apparent in his life? There are probably two reasons why people delay in accepting him today. And 
one response is sometimes people are too much in love with the world and they don't want to give it up. Look at verses 19 and 20. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. It's, there are people that are so into the sins of the world that they can't give it up. It might be sexual sins, it might be materialism, it might be greed, it might be drugs, it might be alcoholism. They think that they just can't get along without those things in their life. So how could they ever turn their lives over to Christ? So they not only reject him, they hate the light. Jesus is indicative of the light. And then if they see that light in Christians, then they reject them as well, because it's a constant reminder of the darkness in their own lives. They don't want anything to do with Christianity because it exposes them. Let's say you approach someone like this, and you invite them to come to church, and they say, oh, if I came to your church, the roof would fall in. And you might hesitate slightly about inviting them, because we just did all this work. We don't want the roof to fall in just yet, but it, it won't fall in. Go ahead and invite them anyway. Or maybe you invite someone, and they back off, and they say, look, if I came to church, I'd just be bored. And then they stay home and they watch something like the shopping channel. And they don't understand that the most fulfilling life is with Jesus. And that you will get to the point one day where you love going to church, where you're anxious to study the Bible together, where you want to be with other Christians and enjoy the community that you experience together. But some people delay that decision because they're still too in love with the world. Now the second reason why people delay is that sometimes they wait because they think that they're supposed to have some type of emotional experience in order to be born again. And people have this stereotype of what a conversion is all about. And the one they think of is the Apostle Paul. Like here is someone who was going in that direction and God got hold of him and turned him in that direction. Like a 180 degree turn for him. He went from persecuting Christians to being the greatest evangelist ever, starting churches all over the Roman Empire. So people think, okay, unless God strikes me with lightning and something like that happens, then I'm not ready to be born again. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have to have that type of experience in order to be born again. And Jesus said, he who believes in me shall have eternal life. He said, acknowledge me publicly, and I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. He said, the one who believes and is baptized will be saved. And the emotion that we have as we go through that is going to be different with every individual. We're all different. We have different temperaments. We have different experiences that we've gone through. But don't wait for some big feeling to make it authentic. And we've got new babies appearing all over the place here lately, and, and it's great. And every time I go to visit the, the new parents, there is a different level of excitement. For some of them, you know, they're, they're bouncing off the roof, the phone, they're on their cell phone constantly telling everybody what's going on. For some, you know, 
that's been such a long labor and delivery. But they're exhausted. They're just so pleased that the baby is finally here and they can rest a bit until the baby cries the first time. But everyone reacts a different way. But it's still an authentic reaction. It's the same way in the Christian life. There are no standards of emotion that you have to have in order to be born again. It's simply an invitation from God that says, whoever wishes may come to me. It's simply an invitation from Jesus. Whoever believes in me shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And that's an amazing offer. How can we refuse that offer? And there's a sense in which we begin again, where all our mistakes and all our heartaches and all the trouble from the past is actually left there in the past. All our selfish sins, they all get dropped just like that. And that's an offer you can't refuse. For God, the greatest being, so loved the greatest emotion that He gave, which is the greatest virtue, His one and only Son, and the greatest gift, that whoever believes in Him, the greatest simplicity, shall not perish, that's the greatest promise, but have eternal life. That's the greatest reward. Do you want that reward? Do you sense that God-shaped vacuum in your life and you've been trying to fill it with a number of different things and it's just not doing it for you? God wants to fill that vacuum. He wants to come into your life. He wants you to surrender your life to Him. Would you do that? Come to the front and greet me. Talk to me afterwards. But we're going to stand together and sing a commitment song. Thank you.